Dubai from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plainspeaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight featuring commentary by Anthony Anderson, veteran of the juvenile justice system and a former U.S. Marine. Ray Hanania, columnist for Arab News. Paul Vallis, education expert and the former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System. And a little bit later on in the broadcast, we'll be joined by the executive director of the Asian and Pacific Islanders American Vote, Christine Chen. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Our program coming to you from the studios of WCGO in beautiful Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us this evening. And uh, we've got the full board of lights, 1-800-723-8029, open for you. We've got lots to talk about. We've got lots of ground to cover in a in our two-hour mission this evening. In the second hour, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking uh, with the leader of the Asian American Pacific Islander Vote Organization in the United States. And uh, I think it could be an eye-opening. I know my preliminary conversation was somewhat eye-opening with the, the group earlier this week, and I think there's a lot of new information you will learn tonight about Asian and Pacific Islanders and where they fit in the uh, the body politic in the United States. But first, I want to begin with uh, education. Paul Vallis is here. Once upon a time, he headed uh, the Chicago uh, public school system, also uh, uh, in New Orleans, and is known around the country for his area of expertise. And uh, Paul joins us uh, uh, along with Ray Hanania and Anthony Anderson. Uh, Paul, my question to you is, at this moment in time when we have a lot of people wondering whether their kids are going to go back to school full-time, uh, half-time, whatever it is, um, who's in charge? Who is in charge of everything that's going on in the country as it relates to education? Well, really, all, all the federal government can really do is provide guidance and funding. They can't mandate that schools open. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the states, it really depends on who the governor is. You know, Governor Pritzker has pretty much left it to the local school districts to decide in Florida, they didn't have that option. You know, the governor uh, pressured and, and forced local school districts to, uh, uh, to open and, mm-hmm. and to provide parents with options. Incidentally, with no significant healthcare consequences, the same thing uh, with the democratic governor in Rhode Island. I think there was only one district that basically bucked birds, so to speak. So it, it, it really depends um, the, the way the governors assert their their influence over the schools is in decisions they make regarding school funding. So in the cases of Florida or even Rhode Island, the governors financially pressured the schools to reopen. And, and I believe it was the absolute right thing to do. So it really varies. But in Illinois, it's pretty much been left to the local school. Do we do we know yet whether or not there's any evidence anywhere in the country that by opening a school or a school system, there has been an increase in COVID deaths. Not really, not that I'm aware of. And and uh, and and let me point out that that uh, in Chicago, for example, uh, where the Chicago public schools have been closed, now they have reopened to these convoluted hybrid models. Uh, effective in April, the high schools still remain closed to any on-site instruction. The Catholic schools open without incident and without any problems, and they've been open since August, and there's 162 Catholic schools involved. So at the end of the day, 
the first of all, the science is clear. Children are minimally act, minimally impacted, and they are least contagious. Uh, the experience is clear. Schools can open uh, without becoming uh, virus spreaders. And the research is overwhelmingly clear, and that is remote instruction does serious damage when that remote instruction mm -hmm. is the dominant instruction, when either fully remote or partially remote, because all the research is pointing to not only the fact that nationwide the children are underachieving, but the gap is widening because clearly mm -hmm. there's a there's a direct impact between the quality of remote instruction, now the quality we, of online instruction, now this and past, social economics. Yeah, this past week we heard the the new head of the CDC say that she was worried about what's going on. And uh, Dr. Osterholm, who is a frequent guest on some of the media programs, he was on this morning uh, on, on one of the programs, and uh, he was basically making the case that in, in Minnesota, there are 749 schools now that have reported some incident of this new strain of virus that's out there. And also, uh, we saw last week that in the state of Michigan, there are 22,000 new cases. So... Are, are we in a situation now where the uh, the education system isn't quite on board as to what they should do? And now we have new evidence that's coming up, at least in those two states, that there may be another whole wave of these things coming that's really going to screw things up. But I want to get Ray Hannity and Anthony okay. Anderson into the conversation here. Ray, what what do you think? Uh, I know it's a, it's a big mess, but uh, is it just, is it going to get messier as as new evidence comes in on these uh, various uh, variants? Well, I listen. I wear a mask every place I go, and I social distance. I had my shots. My wife had her shots. And my son will get his shots, um, you know, but uh, I'd rather err on the side of caution. Um, even though these numbers are increasing in other states like Michigan and, you know, other places in Illinois, they go up and down. Uh, Paul mentioned, and I agree that, you know, younger people are not as susceptible to it. Um, and to be honest with you, younger kids, uh, I, you know, my son is in college. So remote learning is something he can grasp. I don't think elementary school kids really can appreciate or benefit uh, the same way they would from, you know, in class, uh, you know, teaching. And I think that the control of those kids is good for them in terms of safety and community safety. So I'd rather see the kids in class. Um, and if there is a spike in those classes, then we need to do something about it. But, um, you know, I'm kind of mixed on that issue. Anthony Anderson, what's your take on, on this issue? Well, my, my take is this, uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, I was in the union for about 27 years when I was employed with the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And on this one, I do believe the Chicago Teachers Union was 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 absolutely off basis when they said that they don't want to put the kids back into school. And once again, the communities that are affected the most are the ones who can least afford it. And so, right. you know, it, it, it's a sad day when our kids are not able to go back to school, when you have so many different layers of, uh, of, of, of uh, security that we could have, such as the mask, such as the, uh, the, the uh, vaccine. And also, in addition to that, we have the social distancing. And so if you can't work, if you can't, as an administration, work around those different issues, just to get the kids back into school, you know, it, it really is a travesty. And it's unfortunate, again, again, like I said before, uh, the people who suffer the most are the ones who can least afford it. 
And those ones impacted most are those within the African-American and Hispanic community. Would you agree with that, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and let me give you some statistics. I went online because you talked to me about Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, look, when there is a spike statewide, you're probably going to get more cases of individuals contracting the disease when they are uh, not in school, but coming to school and, and uh, testing positive. But, you know, uh, and if, if there's uh, if there's updated data, I welcome it. Uh, I think New York, Minnesota uh, a week ago. Paul, excuse five- Paul, excuse me for one second. Before you go into the Minnesota report, which uh, you were kind enough to be willing to do, uh, we do mm-hmm. have to break for some commercials. We'll be back, okay. and that way we'll give you a full run on it. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8029. Happy Easter, everybody. Nice to have you with us this evening. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Paul Vallis, former head of the school system in the city of Chicago and a noted expert nationally on the subject of education. Uh, Paul, you were uh, you did a little homework uh, before the program this evening about what I referenced uh, in the state of uh, Minnesota. Tell us what you found. Yeah, well, the, the last article I saw about Minnesota and schools was that uh, five schools, um, they consider a... Uh, a, a surge or an upsurge in in uh, uh, the virus in a school as having a school that has tested five or more students as be- testing positive. So think about that for a second. Okay. I actually think the threshold in, in Illinois is much lower. And there were five schools that tested five or more. So there may be a, a surge. That number may be rising statewide, but it doesn't seem to be reflected in the schools. And let me tell you, that's been the pattern. If you remember all the controversy over the Blasio shutting down the New York schools under right. pressure from teachers union, when when the New York uh, infection rate approached nine percent, and in the schools they were less than three quarters of one percent. Uh-huh. So at the end of the day, uh, let me just give you a contrast: twenty five hundred Chicago police officers, as of I think March, had tested positive uh, over the past year for COVID. Incidentally. Um, um, there is no quarantining of police officers when they come into contact with another officer or, for that matter, with a civilian who have COVID. They have to monitor their sy- symptoms and go back to work the very same day. So uh, the point that I'm making here is that uh, schools still seem to be the safest place. And uh, uh, the research tells you, the data tells you that when kids do get infected, they're not getting infected at school, they're coming to school infected. I also want to double down on what Mr. Anderson said. 
uh, about the impact on poor families. Only one in six black and Latino families can work remotely. And we talk about the impact on children, the loss of learning time, et cetera. But what about the impact on working families? What about the impact on working mothers who constitute 80% of the single family households? Did you know that in September, when schools reopened across the country, well over 1 million people uh, basically uh, left the job market and 80% of the people who left the job market were women. And the majority, oh, I don't wanna say the majority, but a large number of those uh, women who left the market were, were women who were, who were, uh, who were uh, single parents. So mm. you have to, uh, you have to get get a sense uh, of the full consequence Paul, of yeah. having schools closed. Paul, uh, and I'm going to ask everybody, uh, Ray, I'll let, I'll let you tackle this first. Uh, how long is it going to take, in your opinion, with all of the myriad of, of activities and, and uh, ripple effect that we're talking about now, how long is it going to take before we know what the last or the current generation of American school children how much they've missed, how much they're going to be behind other students, behind other countries, and, and, and how much has been lost. How do, we, how do you put a figure on that? How do you quantify that? Well, I, of course, I'm a student of the Chicago Public Schools. Um, I remember the principal called my mother in and said, hey, if little Raymond really tries hard, he could be a C student someday. So what I'm saying <laughs> is that, you know, it the environment that I grew up in was very creative. Uh, I don't think I learned much in school. I flunked English composition. It wasn't until later in high school that I became a journalist. So I'm not so concerned about the grades and what they're learning in elementary school. What I'm worried about is they're not learning to deal with other people. They're not le learning to deal with, you know, uh, social interaction. Uh, those are the things that I think really helped me. My grade in geometry didn't do anything for me, you know, uh, and I, clearly I flunked English. <laughs> I couldn't spell. And then I became okay. a city hall reporter after I got out of, you know, in my first year of college. Yeah. Um, so the point is, is I think the real loss isn't the grade and what you learn in school in terms of uh, studies, but how you uh, adapt to a process of learning, how you adapt to other people, how you adapt to an environment. Anthony, that do you, is damaging. Anthony, do you agree that it's, it's more about maybe – uh, the social aspect of going to school than what is being taught by the teachers? Absolutely. It, it, it's more about the social aspects and the ability to interact with one another. But in addition to that, uh, just to piggyback on something Mr. Vallis had said earlier, uh, it really is what in the black community, they call it a, a she session. And not instead of a recession, it's a she session because more black mm -hmm. women are out of work now than it was prior to this COVID thing. And so, you know, a lot of single black parents, especially mothers, are, are, are losing their jobs and, you know, child care issues and all those issues are, are, are working. Mm -hmm. it's, it's having a snowball effect. And again, it's to the detriment of the community. And, and it's unfortunate. And again, uh, a lot of this could have been alleviated early on had the governor took the steps right uh, in the, in the right step in order to fight back against these unions, against the, the, the uh, Mayor Lightfoot in order to hold these guys accountable so these, hmm. these kids can actually okay. be educated and I've, be back into schools. There should have never been a time where a student was out of school for one year. That That's un totally unacceptable okay. on any level. I want to hear also, by the way, keep in mind, folks, we're playing to a national audience. So 
Yes. Uh, I, obviously, we, we know what's going on in Chicago, but if there's if there are teachers or there are students that are listening to the program this evening, I'd really like to hear from you as to far as to what's what's working well in in your district. And again, I get one question that comes back all the time, Paul, is uh, what is it? Uh, obviously, obviously, the numbers are significantly less, but what is it that the parochial schools are doing? Uh, better than the public schools insofar as their ability to keep going throughout this uh, uh, pandemic. Look, you know, I've always I've always had a, a very good relationship with teacher unions in the four districts that I've been in. As you well know, yes. I negotiated two contracts with the Chicago Teachers Union, one in Philadelphia and, and one in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So this isn't about criticizing teachers, but this is about criticizing the current union leadership. And the reason the Catholic schools opened and other private schools uh, opened and, and many public schools opened across the nation, the different states, was because they followed the science. The CDC provided guidelines. You know, they 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 did the masking and the plexiglass and the social distancing, but they opened. Their objective was to open and to find a way to open. And, and, and let me point out that they just didn't open and mandate that everybody attend school, even in Florida which is probably one of the most aggressive states about opening their schools, they gave parents the option. If teachers had pre-existing conditions, they didn't have to come back. They could teach remotely. If children had pre-existing, con- or, I'm sorry, if parents wanted the children to learn remotely, it was their option in the Catholic schools in Chicago. And I cite them as an example because they're, they're I think, the second largest archdiocese as a school district mm-hmm. in the country. I think LA is the biggest. Uh, but But the bottom line here is, 85% of the parents elected to send their kids to school. So at the end of the day, they didn't have the union saying no, because if you remember, uh, 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 Mayor Lightfoot and the administration wanted to open the schools using a hybrid model. Yes. Let me point out, I, I, hybrid models is half education, and, and I think those models are inadequate. But they were trying to get the schools open, but the union threatened to strike. They threatened to strike, and that's the reason that we had to wait until April before elementary school parents were given the option of enrolling their students in school in, in on-site, on-campus learning. Let me point out that at least in Chicago, the high schools are still, are still closed to on-site instruction. So mm-hmm. the fundamental difference is you, you didn't have the National Teachers Union all, all but advising them, or actually doing more than that, advising them, and are directing their locals to to encouraging their locals simply to demand that they go remote or demand that they have hybrid. In other words, put the interests of your members first, the health and financial interests of your members first ahead of the kids. We saw the rhetoric as early as May, as early as May. That is that those are the directives that were coming down. So the fundamental difference yeah. here is is uh, the the teachers didn't have the choice. The archdiocese. Uh, f- felt that they could open their schools uh, uh, safely, which they've proven they can. And obviously, the the teachers, for the most part, were were supportive. Okay, I want to. But, but aren't the parochial schools and the public schools so much different? I, I did go to a parochial school for a half a year, a uh, high school. 
The teachers there are tougher. The system is tougher. The students are afraid of the teachers. In the Chicago public school, I think the kids run the school. I think a lot of teachers that I talk to are afraid of the students. I'm not saying that's in every case, but I'm telling you that in a parochial school, they have more control of the environment where students are. And to some extent, a lot of the families that can that can afford to go to parochial schools are doing a little bit better than the families that go to the public yeah. schools. Yeah, so Ray, that's going to result in differences. Okay. Yeah, Ray, Ray, but let me point out that, as you well know, the, the parochial schools in Chicago serve a very large min- minority low-income population. That's why they have the scholarship program. Let's talk about the suburbs. Let's talk about the ad- the the affluent suburbs. Let's talk about Stevenson High School, a single high school that spends $30,000 per kid and has a cash right. reserve of $75 million. Right. The union forced that community to keep their schools closed to only recently they've gone hybrid. So the bottom line here is there's been this national campaign to, in effect, minimize the or limit the openings to these convoluted hybrids or, or to force the schools to remain completely closed. So, but, so but, it, it's and I think it's been reflected everywhere. And, and at least there have been some states and only in states where the governors basically said, no, listen, it's good. Guys, we got to pause. pause. Okay. We've got to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears. All right. And I want to talk about, I want to start with you, Anthony. I want to get reaction uh, to the Derek Chauvin trial and what lessons, if any, are being learned by people who are taking the time to watch that trial. Back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Let's take a moment now to let each of our guests introduce themselves and uh, give us about uh, 10 seconds on a little bit about your background, Ray Anania. I was a former City Hall reporter from uh, Daily to Daily, covered politics for 45 years, write for the Arab News, and I do media consulting uh, because journalism doesn't earn a living anymore. Okay. Paul Vallis. A long career in government working for the state legislature, City of Chicago's revenue and budget director, and then a four-time big city uh, school district superintendent. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, actually, oh, I was the guy who ran against Rod Blagojevich in the Democratic primary. You ran against Rod Blagojevich in the Democratic primary, and you ran against uh, Lori Lightfoot for mayor, and uh, the voters That's chose it. someone else, but uh, you're still one of the most articulate people on the subject of education uh, that I know. Anthony Anderson, a little bit about your background. 
Uh, I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I'm a former state employee. I worked with the state of Illinois with the Department of Corrections and uh, Juvenile Justice for a period of 27 years. And I just recently retired last year. Okay. I want to talk about the, the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, how much, has, has anybody watched much of the trial thus far? Just be, be honest. I've watched a little I bit of it. I have watched just some of it, Bruce. Yes. Okay. This is Anthony. Let me ask you this question as, as the African-American who joins us this evening. How do you think African-Americans around the country are responding to this trial, whether they've watched it or only reading about it or just watching the news clips? Um, well, and, and, what, and, and what are they likely to do when the verdict comes in? Well, the, the unfortunate part of this is, Bruce, uh, the media early on uh, fanned the, uh, the, the fumes of uh, hatred early in this case. Uh, yes. Uh, there was a lot of overkill in this situation. Uh, the, the crime should absolutely fit the punishment. And in this case, uh, this man had a fake $20 bill. And so there was no reason uh, he had to lose his life over a, a, a fake a piece of U.S. currency. And, mm -hmm. and with that said, uh, the, the officer showed pretty much uh, disdain for this man's life, no matter what. And so that was the case. We knew that going in. But it was the fact that the media had fanned the hatred, the fan the hatred about what's actually happening in America as it relates to the 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 relationship between the African American community and the uh, the police departments all across this country. We know that there's friction uh, from one end of the country to the next in regards to policing. The 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 cities, the states, the counties are trying their best to to come up with a solution. So that African Americans can have more, more, uh, more trust in the police departments, but it's just this is a hard thing to do. Uh, that because this is this is not just started like this year. This has been going on for decades and decades and decades. Want, this mistrust within the, within the community as it relates to policing. All right, I, so I, want, I want Ray. Uh, I want I want Ray to weigh in on this because Ray, you you have been a reporter. You have covered uh, race relations in the city of Chicago, police community relations for you know four decades. Uh, uh, what is your answer to the question of, of, of how people are going to react to this trial once a verdict comes in? Well, it's going to be predictable. Um, I, you know, for, and, you know, I write for the Southwest News newspaper group, too. And the community press and local media is different from the national media. I think the national mm -hmm. media, as uh, Anthony pointed out, have uh, stoked the fuels, the, the, the feelings you know, of anger and hatred because uh, tragedy sells. Nobody wants to read a paper about a guy walking a little old lady across the street. They want to read the story of somebody getting killed. So they need that story. They feed it. But, you know, there's so much about this. We're not allowed to have, I'll be honest with you. I think the backlash uh, in race relations against white people, um, I think is wrong. And but we're not allowed to talk about it. If I bring that up, people say, well, you're a racist. No, I'm not a racist. I'm against racism. I support, you know, the rights of black people. I don't want to see black people discriminated against. I'm thought of as black by white people and I'm discriminated against. And I have an entire community of Arab Americans that nobody cares about. They lost the th almost 
150 stores across this country were burned down, vandalized, looted because the store where George Floyd in front of was killed by that police officer was an Arab American store. And that store's employee uh, were the ones that called the police. And in Chicago, two, we have 12 stores that were totally destroyed and no one was able to do anything for those people till today. No one's being prosecuted. It, 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 it's terrible. And to that, to that point, Ray, it, 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 the, the, uh, the fortunate truth is this. There's not an African-American alive today that was born after 1965 who can't say they aren't enjoying the fullness of the United States Constitution as written today. There's nobody alive today can say that they, they're not enjoying all those full things that come along with the Constitution. And so if you look at what's on the news, it's mostly the younger people who are saying, yeah, something ain't right around here. Well, I'm looking, I'm like, well, you don't, you don't, you can't even imagine what our, the generation prior to 1965 was going through as it relates but to Anthony, racial- But Anthony, can't, can't you acknowledge that there are those born after 1960 uh, that can, that can understand that a black man might be treated differently by police. Bruce, in every situation, there are going to be these these one-offs or or more. But it's the, the, the fact of the matter is, I think a lot of the things that are happening in this country today are being over-exaggerated, especially by the national media. They're being yeah, totally blown out of the I water. agree. If they paid as much attention to the black-on-black crime that happens in the black communities on a daily basis. I mean, if I were a white man and I lived in Chicago, you know what? I would be thoroughly irritated because now I am, I cannot about I cannot go on certain parts of the city just because of the color of my skin. Now, what about you? What are you going to say to those white people who, who who can't walk down certain blocks in the city of Chicago or in other parts of this country because they happen to be one race? And it's only because of the the the, the, the hatred that one group may have or another that's being stoked by the national media or, or some parts of local media. Is it what only being stoked? Is it only being stoked? I mean, you're, you're saying that it's being stoked by, by the media there. It's, it's feeding, it's feeding, a, you know, into a narrative. Paul, uh, let yes. me have you uh, weigh in on, uh, yeah, well, uh, on what, know, what might all, be happening I, I, next. Yeah. You know, I, I can't, uh, I can't agree with Ray and, and uh, Anthony, uh, uh, you know, I, I, no, I, I can't agree anymore. In other words, I fully agree with what you're saying. I can't articulate it any better. But let me point out when we talk about who's stoking the flames, clearly the national media is doing this. And, you know, I, you know, I did an analysis where I looked at the ratio of, for example, uh, um, blacks who were shot by police officers versus whites. And, and when you look at the uh, per capita basis, the, the number is higher. There's absolutely no doubt that the number is higher, although the majority of individuals who are getting killed are, in fact, white. But when you look at a per crime per capita basis, in other words, you know, if you measure the percentage of crime versus the percentage of shootings, actually, the percentage of whites uh, uh, getting shot is, is actually slightly higher. So the point is, you have to look at this holistically. Clearly, there needs to be police accountability. Um, uh, police departments all over the country were outraged at what happened to to uh, to George Floyd. Completely unnecessary, but clearly yeah. the media the media is exploiting this because this is the new narrative. This is the new story. But I'll tell you who's also aiding and abetting in Chicago, for example. The Chicago Teachers Union is aiding and abetting. They're actually funding organizations that are calling for the defunding of cops. They're trying to force the city to take police officers out of the schools. Do you know, do you know, Bruce, that 
Over the last 10 years, there have been 246 school shootings in the United States. That's three times the number, three times the number than the previous decades. What in the heck is the teachers union thinking about? So it's just not the media. You, you also have these groups that have wrapped themselves, you know, in the, the banner of the progressive agenda. And, yeah. and, and what they're doing is they're focusing on these diversionary things rather than sitting down and trying to figure out, for example, at least in Illinois, how to replace the lead pipes that are poisoning children's drinking water up until the 1980s. Lead pipes were mandatory or, or, or how, to, how to do the type of investment on the south and west sides that's going to give people in those poor communities real ownership and real wealth because, you know, because autonomy uh, uh, and empowerment comes through local ownership and local mouth. Well, that, well, that gets into the infrastructure. But, but again, the, the other thing I want to know is, is how police officers, Ray, uh, you probably know quite a few police officers. How, do you, how are they reacting to this? I mean, it, it seems to me that the first time any police officer saw uh, uh you know, saw that, that video, I think most of them probably, if they didn't throw up, they got real sick to their stomach. They couldn't believe what they were watching. They reacted the way I reacted. I'm seeing this police officer put his knee on the guy's neck and I'm going, okay, you got him restrained. Get up, right? handcuff the guy, lift him up. What are you doing? You know? So I think the reaction among most police the worst thing we've done is we've stereotyped police. We blame police for this guy. Uh, there are bad cops. There are bad politicians. There are bad journalists. There are bad people that in every category. But when we stereotype it because it makes for a better story and it's easier to sell, we don't have to explain it to people. Um, that's the sickness because I think the def- that the the defense blaming everybody. the defense the defense is making the case that George Floyd was a was a druggie. How relevant is that, Anthony Anderson? How relevant is it to the story, uh, George Floyd's background? However relevant that may that may be at the time, again, that is a human being. What we what we can't lose sight of the fact that that was a human being. And no human being should be subjected to that type of a of, 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 of degradation at any step in their life. Here's a man where he had his foot or his knee on someone else's uh, throat for a period of eight minutes and 40 something seconds. And the man was crying for his mother, crying out loud. Okay. Now, at some point, got to pause. Heart- got, got to pause, Anthony. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. 
Your trip begins at Michigan.org. We're Sumant back. Thanks very much for uh, joining us. Uh, one of the other big stories uh, last week, of course, was the uh, the shooting at the U.S. Capitol, uh, where a U.S. Capitol police officer was shot and killed. Uh, the assailant, uh, Noel Green, uh, allegedly a supporter of uh, Louis Farrakhan, but uh, the reaction to that story has been mixed thus far. Ray, any comment on uh, on that story and uh, where it might lead, if any, any place? So I, I'm, I, listen, uh, people aren't reacting to the reality of stuff. They saw an opportunity to turn the argument around, you know, and say, oh, look, a black guy did that. Uh, and he was tied to an extremist movement. The truth is that the guy was a criminal and and he should be treated like a criminal. He should be uh, prosecuted, given his day in court. And maybe, you know, there's a side to the story that he wants to bring out. But I don't I don't like to see these stories turned into political weapons to beat up on an issue. Race is the easiest way to shut people up, force your issue down their throats and and get what you want. I, I don't like to see that. I, I hate to see race. I think it hurts blacks. I think it hurts Arabs. I think it hurts the white community. I think we all get hurt when the focus is strictly on racism as a political bludgeon to shut people up, to change our culture. I, I think it's wrong. It takes away from what the real problem is. Reyes, I want to say he's absolutely correct. In addition to that, the, uh, the shooter last week was killed. He was killed, as a matter of fact. Right. And so... Getting, getting, getting back to that point, though, uh, we need to have conversations as to what really happened. And all the other stuff set aside, this was an individual who did what he did under what other auspices. That's, that's, that, that's the point. But the fact of the matter is we need to take from there. And not, uh, when we bring race into every single, um, every single context of everything we talk about, that's when everything gets distorted, in my view. It, it gets way too distorted, and we start to lose focus on what actually happened. We had a criminal who ran into a barrier at the U.S. Capitol, and it never should happen. End of story. But the other, but the other, the other happened with January 6th, and then again, it was in the early age. These, these are these are incidents that happened, but 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 in in the case with the again, the national media, they drive this narrative in terms of okay, who were they associated with, and why were they doing it in the first place? Well, let me. And ask, that's what I think is, is where we messed. Make I want to get. I want to get everybody's reaction. We'll start with Paul. Because we've talked about the Chauvin trial, we talked about uh, the shooting at the Capitol, and uh, or an African American was involved, uh, and and the story that probably got the most coverage was the way in which corporate America and Major League Baseball decided they were going to shame the state of Georgia because of restrict because of alleged voting restrictions that they had passed in legislation. They were gonna they were gonna give the stick the big stick. Uh, to the state of Georgia and their legislators, thus, again, to some people, touching a a, a racial uh, nerve to that. Paul, do you see that? And uh, where where would you put the decision of Major League Baseball and all those corporate titans in Georgia for literally slapping the knuckles of the General Assembly down there? Well, look, uh, I feel it's very unfair, you know, uh, uh, I think it was the wrong decision. I mean, you know, you can debate the merits of the Georgia law, uh, you know, the proponents will argue that they want voter accountability. Uh, the opponents will say that this makes it more difficult for minorities to vote. But the bottom line is Major League Baseball stepping up to the plate and and so to speak, pardon the play on words, right. and basically saying, look, we're going to boycott. You know, I mean, Major League Sports, uh, we all remember how silent, how silent the NBA was 
when the, the Chinese uh, were cracking down on Hong Kong because they didn't want to lose their ma- their merchandising money. Right. Or for that matter, how the how the NFL made their great switch. First of all, they hung out Kaepernick to dry uh, out to dry. And then later on, they became some of the biggest proponents to basically, you know, supporting, um, uh, you know, athletes who wanted to put the names of victims on their helmets and things like that. Mm-hmm. They did a complete re- reversal. You remember the president of the NFL right. doing a my culpa. So, you know, at the end of the day, these guys are just driven by by profit and they're trying to decide which side to fall on so yeah. that they can, in effect, maintain their market share. So I think it was the wrong decision. And, you know, if you want to battle, battle it legislatively, don't punish the state of Georgia uh, for, for you know, uh, for the legislature, uh, you know, debating and making changes to the yeah. election law that yeah. should be debated. Anthony, in the Anthony Anderson, how, how do you, uh, do, do you see, uh, do you see those, uh, the Georgia law as overly restrictive? Absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, if you ask me, I'll tell you this, Bruce. You named for me one black person, one African American that wasn't able to cash a stimulus check or open up a bank account to cash a stimulus check because they didn't have a, an ID. And, and it's absolutely preposterous. It doesn't happen. Or you tell me one black person or, or, or any other person for that matter that wasn't able to get uh, a benefit from government largesse because they weren't able to get a, a, an ID card. Mm-hmm. It's a fake. It's a fraud. These guys know that. And we know that. The only problem. Well, are you saying? I, wait, 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 I, I want to make sure I understand. Are you saying that it's easy for an African American uh, or anyone to get an ID uh, in, in the yes, state of absolutely. Georgia? You, if you can go into the state of, uh, for instance, the state of Illinois requires a birth certificate, a Social Security card. Yeah, but what about Georgia? <laughs> get an ID. Now, now you tell me, Bruce. I'm, I'm telling you. You named for me one black person in the state of Georgia wasn't able to cash a stimulus check because they couldn't find an ID. It doesn't exist. It's it's an issue that the media again, once again, they're stoking that's the right. fumes of hatred amongst groups in order to say to create something that's just not there. They right. want to say Do you it's, agree it's with that? High tech version of, of Jim Crowism. It's right. not. But you know, here's what I say, Bruce. To this, the, the Republican Party. They should have listened early and often because they should they should have been in the black community years ago, decades ago. Therefore, they wouldn't have to start off at this step with, with every election cycle where the, the, the accusation is you're racist and prove me wrong. And that's what the Republican okay. Party is, 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 is wrong at. OK, we, we have to pause. You've uh, you've lit a fuse for the second hour of our conversation. Uh, that will continue after some network news. We'll be back with Paul Vallis and Anthony Anderson and Ray Hanania. And in the next hour, we'll also be joined by Christine Chen. And uh, she is with the Asian Pacific Islanders uh, voting, American, as uh, a voting in uh, the United States. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Another full hour of Beyond the Beltway rolls on from Evanston, Illinois. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. 
Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you for joining us wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border. Uh, our guests continue, Ray Hanania and Paul Vallis and Anthony Anderson from hour number one. And we'll get uh, to engage them in thought in just a moment. But at the end of our first hour, we were talking about the the Georgia uh, law election uh, laws that have created quite a consternation amongst many corporate-based uh, companies in Georgia uh, they don't like what the Republican legislature did, and uh, uh, they put some pressure on Major League Baseball, or Major League Baseball uh, succumbed to pressure, and they decided they were going to move the All-Star game uh, and the baseball draft from uh, uh, Georgia coming up in uh, mid-July. Uh, this specific measure, you probably have heard about it, but I want to just take a moment here to give you some specifics about it. The Georgia measure uh, will give the state's Republican majority legislature more control over county election boards, which certify elections. It also adds voter ID requirements for absentee ballots, and that seems to upset many, many people, the requirement for the photo ID or the voter ID. 
It limits access to ballot drop boxes while codifying them into state law. These are the drop boxes where you drop your your ballots off uh, in advance of of the election. Uh, It expands early voting days for the general election, which most people seem to think is a good idea. I don't know how that would keep people from voting. It criminalizes the practice of line warming, in which volunteers hand out food and water to voters standing in long lines. Now, virtually every state has that. There's a thing called electioneering. You're not supposed to do it within 150 feet, generally speaking, of the polling place. And again, uh, the concern was, I guess last time, there were, there were some political organizations who had an ax to grind, and they were handing out water and or food to people that were waiting in line. That's called electioneering. That's that literally is illegal in virtually every state. Now, this is the this is the provision that probably has got the most national reaction. They say, well, how on earth? Why would you not give water to someone who's standing in line? Well, if the water bottle that you're handing out uh, has a label that says vote for, you know, uh, Governor Kemp or vote for Stacey Abrams, then that's a political document. That's like getting a pamphlet. So there's a reason why. Uh, Georgia would not want someone from a political persuasion to be giving water out. But again, the the broader thing is we don't want anybody to do it. It does not prohibit the county itself from giving out water. So an entity can do it as long as it's not a partisan entity. And again, uh, that's a delineation or a difference in the the specifics of the law that no one uh, is promoting, and certainly at the national level, it's being uh, you know wrapped up into this joke that someone who's starving uh, and and dying of thirst can't get water while they're waiting in line. That's not exactly right. Uh, it shortens the runoff elections in all, but eliminates the use of mobile voting buses, uh, barring emergencies. And these are among the other rules. And again, this is something that uh, uh, that the the governor has responded to. I think one of the reasons why there has been this overwhelming response to what Georgia has has done is that Georgia is the first state to have changed some of their voting laws. There are other states, mostly Republican states, that want to change their voting laws as well to match some of these recommendations of Georgia. And because of that, there is great fear that this is going to be a national, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be a run on this type of an election uh, in other states. And so the, the corporate titans that, that rest in Georgia, they want to use as much power as they can to, uh, uh, to, to uh, punish the state of Georgia and its legislators uh, for doing what what at least many Republican lawmakers believe is uh, is just making the uh, the elections more fair uh, in their states. Uh, Ray Hanania, back to you. Uh, I gave spent a little more time than I wanted necessarily laying it all out, but I think uh, since newscasts never do that, I'm wondering if uh, if you think this is just an example that. The national news media is just deliberately misrepresenting the specifics of this legislation to uh, make their political point. I think there's a movement in the Democratic Party, the far left. Uh, I hate to use labels like that, but these are people that are uncompromising. They don't support consensus. Um, They found that you could use race to pretty much drive any issue. I I think that if people were to debate uh, what Atlanta is or what Georgia is doing, uh, debate the issue of 
ID cards. I, I can't imagine any Arab uh, not having an ID card. So, you know, are they being discriminated against? And any person, uh, a citizen not having an ID card, uh, not having access to an ID card, what is that about? They've and And when you address it that way, it doesn't seem logical. You know, the arguments against us, but when you put the color of race on it, you beat people up and say you're a racist if you oppose it but you're a uh, racist if you support it um then it changes the whole argument you can't get into Anthony, the real isn't issues. isn't the isn't the crux of what ray just said is that you have people arguing this point who try to make the point that african americans are not smart enough to know where to go to get an id that's, yes I, and that's that's, that's, my point. Th- that's my point exactly and, and then I think what, what most people need to also understand is this. There was a huge uh, percentage of Americans last year uh, during last year's elections, national elections, that have some some um, some shortcomings about that election. And so some of us want to address those issues so that during the next election cycle, right. we won't have these issues. And, and if, if, they, if they would come across like that, in addition to these 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 small, uh, these infantile uh, uh, measures that are being taken in order to ensure election integrity. I mean, what else could a person ask for in a free country? Everyone wants free and fair elections, no matter what the race is. But is it also, but but realistic, uh, Paul, isn't this a fault of of the Republicans and those that support this legislation that they have not been out front to explain to the media and go on camera and and explain what, what this water uh, you know waiting in line is all about that it's not just some punitive decision but there's some there's some there's some reason for it look you know um there's going to be a lot of states that are going to be taking a look at their voting laws post covid because covid was a game changer when it came to voting absentee and the drop boxes and things like that and remember (laughs) every state controls their own local voting laws i mean (laughs) You want to talk about voting suppression? <laughs> Illinois, for, for crying out loud. You know something you, about you really that. About it. <laughs> I remember how horrified the people in the city were when I was a school board, uh, when I was school superintendent, when we pushed to require all of our eighth, uh, our high schoolers who had who were graduating, who were 18, to also be registered to vote. So at the end of the day, there's been voting, there's been voter suppression on the left. And voter suppression on the right. I do want to say one, a couple of things. So, number one, this isn't uh, this isn't Jim Crow two. That's hyperbole and that's offensive. And the fact that they would say that is is clearly they're trying to uh, uh, politicize well, this. That's the president. And, and, that's and that's anything, the president of the United States well, yeah, playing that race card in his run. We do have to pause. We'll be back okay. in just a moment. One one last segment. All right. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. 
Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Rooster Mott back in Evanston, Illinois with Beyond the Beltway this evening. And let's go to Dave, who's listening to us in Spokane, Washington, where I'm sure the uh, the partying continues in the, the city that uh, uh, welcomes and calls home uh, probably uh, Gonzaga, who tomorrow night is going to go for the National NCAA Championship against Baylor. It's going to be one heck of a basketball game, but uh, the game uh, last night was probably one of the great basketball games of all time. And uh, again, uh, I was cheering like millions of other fans all over the country. Dave, uh, is the city uh, is it still rocking tonight? Uh, we're still rocking. You can we can all together say go Zags, yes. go Zags. Yes. I just hope that they don't give me a heart attack. <laughs> well, that that game they were last. They tried to give that, me a heart attack in the last game. Yeah, that 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 last game was was quite something. Uh, the buzzer beater, literally, with uh, no time left. That's the uh, that's the way to win. A, that's the way to get everybody's attention. But how can we help you tonight? Yeah, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. But okay. Uh, hey, I, I want to say you, you hit it exactly. I always love that you are right on these things uh, with the electioneering. Uh, that's the problem, not specifically in Georgia that I'm talking about. If I wanted to go into a line of long line of people just with regular clothing and not say a word to people about my political leanings one way or the other, yeah. I could walk up and down that line and hand out water all day, right. and I'm not going to be in any kind of problems. The, the law specifically addresses you can't be a political advocate trying to do right. what you mentioned, electioneering. Um, and then I feel like we're in the twilight zone in America in regards to so many things. But with this, for example, you have these companies and the, the major league uh, baseball and different different sports athletes coming out and raising hay about a Georgia law, which, quite frankly, they don't even understand the law, and they're they're all upset about something. They don't even know the facts. Right. But yet, you don't hear the uproar about HR one in the House of Representatives, and it's completely di- it's a dichotomy of where we should be. We should absolutely be more concerned about HR one in the House of Representatives, a law that they're trying to pass that would actually get rid of the requirement for IDs, yes. get rid of signature verification. They're, they're trying to register everybody under the sun. I mean, it just seems so ridiculous that the, the outrage is totally in the wrong area. Well, this uh, is why this is what, sur- this, is, this is what okay. surprises me, and I want to get I want to get your reaction, Dave. But I want to get our our, our guests uh, online as well. Uh, and I'm going to start with Paul Vallis. Paul, why is it when 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 you look at the uh, at the logos of the uh, of the fifteen to twenty companies, they're not all just Atlanta based. Most of them are, but many of them are not. It includes uh, Facebook and Apple and uh, and many others. Why do you think they jump into this? I mean, clearly they know that their stockholders. Uh, some of their stockholders will agree with this law. Some of them will disagree with it. Some will read race issue into it. Some will you know, can't see race uh, into this legislation. And yet, as a corporation, they step up to support uh, a, a a political position that many people disagree with. And and yet, they're putting their logos on the line. Why do you think they do that? Well, I think the narrative has has been really. Uh, the narrative has been one of, of voter suppression. This is 
uh, the narrative has been one of, uh, uh, you know, uh, local empowerment, uh, institutional racism, et cetera. I think that's been the narrative. And I think what they're trying to do, I, I mean, the same way the NFL switched from uh, a point where they, in effect, ostracized Kaepernick to the point to where they were suddenly embracing Black Lives Matter and many of the other advocate groups, um, many of the other uh, uh, groups that were basically trying to make the case about institutional racism in the country. I think what these corporations do they lose do, money over it? But do you think they lose money? Do you think they lose money over it though? Well, I mean, are you, they you know, are they doing are they doing something that they think they're going to get some social attaboys uh, for for the for the national media? But the reality is, in the in the in the corporation, maybe they're losing money. You know, that's hard to say. I can't tell you what goes on behind uh, closed doors, but I think when it, whether it's Major League Baseball or for that matter, I pointed out the NBA, the way they were silent on China's suppression of Hong Kong, right. uh, in part because of their massive uh, Chinese market. I think uh, these these corporations are driven by the profit motive and they kind of assess where things should fall and uh, or where they're uh, where uh, what what posturing they should embrace that will protect their market. And I think that's what you're seeing now. And in, and until there's a backlash, I think you're going to continue to see them move in that direction. Of course, you're, you're all aware of the controversial Pepsi commercial uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, where you basically have a, a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic group of protesters confronting police. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's uh, uh, someone walks through the crowd I, I think it was one of the Kardashians or one of the uh, one of the Jenner uh, daughters yeah. walks through the crowd and 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 kind of breaks the ice by giving a police officer a can of Pepsi. So I mean, it's just it's it, this is all market driven. They're looking Ray, at where they're. Uh, I want to get Ray and Anthony. Ray, how do you? Uh, and I'm not. I didn't ask anybody before the program whether you're going to boycott any of these uh, companies. I mean, certainly the uh, Major League Baseball uh, is, is. President Trump has said that people should boycott major league baseball. I don't know how that really demonstrates itself, but are there any of these other companies that you think are going to lose much sleep or much money, uh, uh, you know, by taking this position like an apple? I, mean, I don't think these companies are going to lose any sleep, Bruce, for one reason. One fact is this, uh, they have a large footprint in a bunch of these communities. And so therefore they're trying to placate these different communities, whether it means where, where they will adversely affect them or not, they want to be seen as taking the high road, the moral road in terms of, you know, having this 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 um, this relationship with the African-American community at large uh, and everything else be damned. That's what that's that's their position. Is it all. But is I guess my question, is it all about the the, the black market that they're only concerned about uh, appeasing black consumers? I don't. I don't think they're concerned too much about the black market. But as you can see, uh, once you get a label, it's sort of hard to shake those labels. I mean, look mm-hmm. at how hard how hard it's been for the Republican Party in general to yeah. shake the label of being racist, no matter what. Right. They, they've got that. They can't seem to shake it, and it's been generations, and nothing's changed. And so once you get those labels, it's hard to lose them, especially in today's environment where it's where to news travels fast. There's social media, okay, yeah. and there's different platforms. Ray. It, 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 I want to ask Ray, Ray, as a journalist, because you, you've referenced uh, the narrative and, and Paul has talked about, you know, that that that, that companies, uh, you know, that they've they've bought into a narrative or they become captive of a narrative. How does a narrative begin? Because if you have the media on one hand 
and you have corporate America on the other, how does how does that start? Who starts that narrative? You know, it used to be that we would have elected officials, government officials elected by the people, set the tone, decide what the issues are. I'm telling you, the news media, which is corporate run, major media, I'm not talking about the small press, the community press. I'm talking about major media. They define things. This is a big story for them. They're making more money. When an African-American is killed in Chicago, they sell newspapers. That if you eliminate crime, a lot of papers are going to go out of business. But I want to make a point about the these athletes engaging in social justice issues. Are you kidding me? These are people that are making $28 million a year. They What do they know about the people that are suffering on the street? It's a joke. So they have to be doing it because the big athletes want to improve their image and make more money. And I think they're pushing these uh, athletic associations do what they want them to do. They're afraid of that. They're afraid to be called racist. They're afraid to deal with real issues. It's race and race is a bludgeon. And I, and I feel bad for the real, for victims of racism, somebody who really is targeted because of race, they're going to get lost in this big fog of political racist debate. And I don't think they'll ever get justice the way they should get. Because if someone's discriminated against, we should defend that person and fight against the racism. But today it's political, racist, you know, uh, strategy. And uh, these athletes make it. But those corporations, those corporations, the ones that I referenced, the ones that are Georgia based, they're basically saying they believe that those elected Republicans in Georgia are racist. They're making a statement. And yet those they're making, they're, they're making a they're big pandering statement. to a market. They're pandering to a market. I think it, but no don't they need, but don't they as a, cor- as a corporation, don't they need more than just black consumers? I mean, how many, how many, how many, uh, how many tax breaks does, does Coca-Cola and or a Delta get from the state of Georgia? I mean, would it be wrong now for Georgia to come back and pull all the funding that they provide to Delta? Would that be fair? Tit for tat? Listen, this is all about money and this yeah. is all about politics. Yeah. It's not about race. It's not about people being discriminated right. against. That's okay. yep. the worst part of this whole thing. Paul Vellis. Bruce, yeah, Bruce, I just wanted to make the point. It's just not the black market. It's the youth market. I mean, when you saw that Pepsi Pepsi commercial, they were playing to that broader youth market because they think that's where the pendulum is swinging. And trust me, just as the NFL. That's where their market is. That's right. And but just as the NFL like flipped, you know, first they were anti-Kaepernick and then they were pro Black Lives Uh Matter. I mean, they'll flip back again if they feel that that's where the market is trending. So what we're I mean, so clearly they're driven. Clearly they're driven by that. But, uh, you know, so I I think think that. that, uh, Go ahead, Dave. Uh, I was going to say, Bruce, I I totally, I agree with the the idea that racism is getting minimized. The main reason that happens is that you have so many of these cases where it's called out to be racism before the the ink is even dry on the first word of starting to look into the investigation. And then you come to find out racism is not proven whatsoever. But the media never goes back and does a mea culpa. And so the narrative persists that, oh, racism is everywhere because they never go back and correct themselves and say, oh, we were wrong for doing it. And then the problem is, like a guest said, the actual case of racism get minimized 
because they just get overlooked because when everything is racism, okay. nothing is racism. Okay. And, Dave, and, and one at, comment on the narrative, we we're out of time. Now, Dave, Dave, we're out, out of we're out, we're out of time. Call next week. Our thanks to Paul Vallis and Ray Hanania and Bye, Anthony buddy. Anderson and Dave from Washington. Back with another segment. Don't go away. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. We had a uh, unique thing happen, and hopefully our uh, director will be able to figure it out as we move forward. Uh, But uh, my clock just froze. So if I was a little bit late in coming back to say hello to everyone and welcoming Christine Chen to be on the Beltway, it's because my digital clock is uh, frozen here in Chicago. So uh, we'll just keep talking until uh, the music comes in again. Christine, nice to have you with us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Christine is the executive director of the Asian and Pacific Islanders American Vote. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk with her about is obviously uh, the news has been filled with stories of uh, uh, actions, uh, violent actions against Asian Americans over the last uh, several months. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But I kind of want to broaden the subject out because uh, there's not a lot of uh, discussion. There's not a lot of coverage of Asian Americans as it relates to uh, voting and voting patterns. And so I wanted to kind of uh, have a, 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 a course in uh, Asian American voting. So Christine uh, is the head of an organization that focuses on that. And Christine, let, let's begin by talking about when we talk about Asians, uh, wh- who are we talking about? Yeah, Asian American Pacific Islanders is a very broad term. Um, It really encompasses everyone from East Asians, which you will know as like Chinese, Japanese, Korean, to Southeast Asians, which include like um, Vietnamese, Hmong, Thai, um, those from those um, countries, to South Asians, which is um, belonging to Indian, Pakistani, Mm -hmm. um, Bangladeshi, um, and then also Pacific Islanders. So, you know, for API Vote, we actually work with over 20 different ethnic communities um, currently, but it can actually span up to 50. Okay. When when you're talking about Asian American, again, when you're talking about the Hispanic communities, uh, there, there are a variety of nationalities or countries represented when you're talking about uh, Hispanics or, or, or Latinos. When you're talking about uh, Asians, as you said, the, the, the numbers are very large. But is there a uh, is there a cooperative feeling amongst them when they when they be, when they come to the United States? Are they cooperative? Are they competitive? Are there groups there that really don't like each other? I mean, historically, we know that the the Japanese and the and the Chinese have have not been 
close over the centuries. Uh, what about now? Right. So, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders, currently we make up about 6.5% of the U.S. population and over two thirds of our community are first generation immigrants. So what that means is that a lot of our um, uh, population is coming from more of an understanding from um, countries uh, and the whole term of Asian American Pacific Islanders is really a term here within the United States where they lump us all together. Mm -hmm. But um, what we found quickly is that they do come together because uh, very quickly you find out that many times we're lumped together under stereotypes of the model minority or being the other or this Americanized foreigner. And unfortunately this, you know, past year with the rise of anti-Asian violence and hate, um, you know, quickly people are really understanding how, you know, we as a community, it it doesn't matter because we, everyone's lumping us together. Um, But also in terms of issues and throughout the, throughout history and in terms of what we've seen in, terms of the polling that we've done as a nonpartisan organization is that there are issues um, that really resonate with this Asian American electorate. And so they do come together uh, when it comes uh, when when you actually talk to them about issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, as it relates to uh, the violence, do you think the, uh, the media coverage of the violence is based on reality or is it based on a, uh, a favored media narrative at the moment uh, when when many things get thrown into that hopper when the news media is uh, looking at the issues? You know, we, you know, right now, if anything, we've been actually asking for this coverage because we've been dealing with this escalation of anti-Asian violence since last year. Um, you know, we've, we had seen a lot of attacks, especially among our senior citizens. Um, and so, you know, for, for over 12 months, um, we've been really trying to, you know, reach out to law enforcement, to the media, to elect officials, to get them to understand that um, this was happening and it was escalating and that we actually needed help and assistance in our communities. So right now, the the focus, and unfortunately, because of what had transpired in um, Atlanta, Georgia, really has finally shown a highlight in terms of what is happening. And I am appreciate I'm very appreciative of your show as well as other media who is actually allowing us to mm-hmm. peel back and people make understand um, what is the Asian American Pacific Islander community. If, what do yep. your neighbors look like, and wh- how are they feeling? Let's let's take a look at what happened uh, in in Atlanta with the attack on the uh, on the massage uh, parlor there. Uh, when you heard the story, did you instantly think that it was an Asian an, or Asian or Asian hate crime? Uh, and then when the perpetrator there said that that he was a sex addict, uh, did that separate you at all from your initial inclination? Right. So, you know, we work with our local partners in Atlanta. So immediately it, it was also finding out information from them. So as soon as we found out it was um, the uh, the Korean parlors, you know, we actually many of us actually know of those um, type of institutions because that's actually very common in our community. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like going to massage envy or to, you know, right. um, things that we we see. Right. And right. but um, so. For it to for them to actually go to three different ones and 
three different locations across um, the greater Atlanta area, mm-hmm. we immediately thought this was a hate crime, especially with what we've been um, experiencing this past year. Okay. And uh, when that happens, uh, does the Korean community that in many cases are involved in that type of business, those types of businesses, and I, I don't know whether I'm accurate or not saying that, but of the groups that you mentioned, I think the uh, either the Thai or the uh, or the uh, uh, would would be the most likely. Uh, does that make them? Are they upset about that that their people are going into that type of business, or do they see it as a legitimate business within their uh, you know business aspirations? Yeah, you have to realize that is actually a legitimate um, business. I mean, even the mayor had um, noted that, right? So it's just like if you open up a restaurant or things like that. So for us, we immediately was looking at these are small business um, owners and these are um, low-income wage workers that really needed assistance um, on top of all the trauma that they're actually facing with all this anti-Asian violence. But again, when when the perpetrator here said that he he was a sex addict, did it reduce in any way the fact that the fact that the women were Asian had maybe little to do with it? No, because I think that's where um, where you know this is where individuals or media is trying to separate the two, and many times targeting of women and Asian women mm-hmm. is actually one and the same, and and so mm-hmm. it's you know. It, it really is about what, how he perceived what these establishments were mm-hmm. versus in reality what they were. You mentioned that uh, many of your members are first generation uh, to this country. Uh, how far do we go back? I mean, if, if we tried to turn back the clock to the very first uh, uh, you know, group of, of Asians that came to this country, uh, would it have been from China? Or historically, can you give us any... Uh, uh, any uh, background on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, actually the first Asian Americans were Filipino Americans. Okay. And then, um, then later on were Chinese Americans working the railroad and, um, and, you know, they were the first immigrants that came here in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, so they were here in the big, from the beginning of time when we were building this United United States and this nation and this infrastructure Um, Then throughout time, um, what we've seen in terms of history of where we've continued to face um, different hardships and barriers in terms of becoming um, truly recognized as uh, Americans is like the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II in terms of the racial profiling there. And then, you know, I'm I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. And Mm -hmm. so I remember in the 80s um, when we were looking at the hate crime of Vincent Chin. Um, this was during the time period when the um, auto industry was not doing um, well economically here in the United States. And so two auto workers um, saw Vincent Chin as a Chinese American, but they actually um, thought of him as Japanese and saying that you're taking away our jobs and then ultimately um, killed him um, in, in the Michigan area. Christine, we've got, we've, got a po- we've got to pause Hi, for a moment and then we'll be back. Today's okay? tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. 
One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bristolmont back in Evanston, Illinois. We're talking with Christine Chen. And uh, Christine, uh, from a political standpoint, uh, uh, one of the documents that uh, was sent to me by your associates suggested that you were probably the deciding factor in the most recent presidential election. When I say you, know, you I mean your your group, your Right. So um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders were part of um, also a factor in terms of who won the elections in a lot of the battleground states. A lot of people don't realize that we're actually one of the fastest growing segments of eligible voters. So this past year, more than 11 million were able to vote in 2020, making up 5% of the nation's eligible voters. Mm -hmm. But even more so in terms of some of the when you look at the states in itself, so, for instance, you know, there's a lot of tension looking in terms of Georgia. So Georgia, in terms of their population in the last decade, you know, um, increased by over 49 percent. And then also no group in Georgia relied on early um, early male voting more than API voters. So 85 percent of API voters also cast our vote in Georgia um, mm -hmm. early during the election period. And we actually overperformed um, more than any other um, demographic. And uh, what can you say, uh, tell us about the mix between Republican voters and Democratic voters within uh, your study group? So Did they lean one way? So traditionally in the past, um, it used to be a third Democrat, a third Republican, a third independent. The last decade or so, um, you saw a lot of Asian Americans actually trend um, Democrat. Um, a lot of it is also based on the issues um, that the candidates stand for. Um, and then, um, and, but even then there's uh, this year, even though you have majority of uh, those who are leaning Democrat, there are some slight differences. So for instance, Vietnamese Americans and Filipino Americans trend to be a little bit more conservative. Indian Americans, Japanese Americans tend to be a lot more progressive. Mm -hmm. So, but one, one thing that we did see is also Chinese Americans out of all the Asian ethnic groups, they actually, um, their majority um, are identifying as independent. And uh, is the is the majority of, of your when I say your group, while we're talking about the collective uh, community that you represent, uh, I think primarily West Coast, but not exclusively West Coast. No. So the, I think that's the what people um, used to think is like okay. that Asian Americans were only on the East and West Coast. But now you've seen tremendous growth. Uh, we're large numbers in Texas, New York, Washington, Florida, Virginia. These are part of the top 10 states where we actually are reside in. So and then you saw this past decade growth in North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. And these are places where the dem demographics are changing and then also in terms of the elections. And so I would take like Virginia and Nevada, for an example, 
Um, both Democrats and Republicans the last decade have been aggressively um, you know, trying to reach out to engage Asian American voters because they realize at the local level, they are making a difference in terms of the elections, swinging either way, depending on the candidates. Uh, many, uh, many uh, groups or political groups, uh, they carry some albatross around their neck. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, ethnic groups in, in the United States. They're, I won't get into it, but again, a lot of negative connotations. When I think of Asian Americans, I think they're smart, they're hardworking, and they're family and they're very family oriented, all positive. Is that a fair assessment of the plus side of at least the image of Asian Americans? Yeah, I would say that's actually one of the model minority myths um, that um, has been plaguing our community for quite a so long time. So it's a time. myth, a myth. It- Yes. Well, because, you know, we are as diverse as other uh, other Americans uh-huh. here in the United States. Right. right. We all come from various uh, different economic situations, education situations. And because we're seen as being uh, highly successful or because our cultural values or upbringing or so, quote unquote more superior, then it actually silences the reality that um, we actually are facing different difficulties or a different racism, or are not, or do not have access to certain resources, and you know, for instance, Asian American seniors, um, women, actually have the highest rate of su- of the suicide rate, and a lot of people don't even know about that. No. Uh, or in New well, why, York, why, one of the why largest. Do you, why do you think that is? You know, unfortunately, I'm not I'm not an expert in terms of that area, but these are like some. Um, demographics that we're we're all learning about as this um, as more research and we're actually capturing data about this community. I think that's part of the problem is that for the longest time we're always seen as the other in polling data and research you always see white, black, Latino and then you have other. And so it's only when we're starting to capture data about the Asian American community that we're learning about these um, things about our, our our communities in itself. Uh, is it true that they tend to uh, congregate more amongst themselves? Are they? I, I have heard again. This is anecdotal that uh, many businesses that are owned by Indians or Pakistanis or Koreans that if they are going to sell those businesses, they try to sell those businesses to someone else from their nationality group. Is there any truth to that at all? I would not say that. I think it goes back to different generations. When you first, you know, come here, you know, you're going to naturally gravitate to people that you that you know and I and have been working with, right? But then after that, um, you know, in terms of business is business, you know, you're going to look into um, who you want to sell to, based on the values and and um, whatever. What is the priority of that particular person? I also know in terms of even, um, you know, working and living in different communities. I know I'm a second generation Chinese American. I know my parents would love the wish that I had learned Chinese American more efficiently, <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I didn't. So you know, it, it out, goes back to we are we are out of time. I thank you very much for forgive me for maybe some pretty dumb questions, but Christina Chen, thank you very much from the. Uh, American, uh, Asian, and uh, Pacific Islanders vote.
in Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.